Welcome to Lore Watch, a roundtable freeform discussion about lore in the games of Blizzard Entertainment. I'm Ann Stickney, one of two lore-focused writers over on Blizzard Watch, and I've got both of my wonderful co-hosts with me today. First up, he's a shaman columnist. He also knows a lot about lore, and um, I don't know if you want to mention the other thing or not, Joe, but go ahead. I am a new you? uncle. It's You're great. Uncle. I'm, I'm having a really good day today. <laughs> That's pretty cool. So um, congrats on that. That was this morning, correct? Uh, as of about an hour ago. Wow. Okay. So real recent. Thanks for stopping by to actually <laughs> do the podcast instead of running off to see your Well, I mean, to relatives. be fair, for all those out there that think that I, put, uh, I would put the podcast above family, I wouldn't, except I'm not allowed to go visit quite yet. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it just happened an hour ago. Yeah, it's probably going to be a little bit of time before uh, they want visitors in there. Anyway. So, yeah, congrats, Joe. Also with us is our other lore columnist from over on Blizzard Watch, and that would be Matt Rossi. Hey, Rossi, how's it going? Uh, um, I, I played some World of Warcraft. I, <laughs> no babies, sorry. <laughs> I was all excited that I found out one of my characters had a bunch of gear that I didn't know he had. So instead of him being a, like a walking disaster, he's actually like item level 890-something. So I was like, oh, okay. Hey, I can there do Argus go. on this guy. I don't know why. Why didn't I do Argus on him? That's strange. I'm working so, yeah. on my. I'm working on my alt still, and my alt just hit. Um, she's like almost level seventy, very close to level seventy. And meanwhile, I've got tokens for every slot from Argus just waiting for <laughs> when that alt hits one ten. <laughs> you know, I, I I got my my alt up to like sixty six yesterday, and then I was like, I'm gonna take another break because I took like a week and didn't do anything on him, and that was kind of a mistake because I missed a lot of Dark Moon Fair, but I got I got some yesterday, so I managed to get him the uh, one of the cosmetic appearances from Dark Moon Fair, uh, one of the replica pieces. I, I bought that for him to complete yeah, a set. I haven't like messed with the Dark Moon Fair on my alt at all. I no, I take that back. I went and did like the profession quest to get some profession points and that was it. See, I, I, I went I did the replica thing too. Like just yeah. recently I went and got the uh the Beastmaster set because I realized that somehow my hunter, despite being a character that I've played for the entirety of the existence of Warcraft, I have I apparently didn't keep that. So if I had to go, I was yeah. like, oh, I'll just go get this. I, I have an annoying hole like in my collection as well. So I went and got the Light Forged Gauntlets, Light Forged Gauntlets. So I just wanted to have them for my Light Forged, you know, Draenei. I wanted to have the actual entire Light Forged set, even though the hat's horrible. Just yo, just dog. We heard you like Light Forged, so here's Light Forged on your Light Forged. Yeah, yeah. basically. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So um, today. We're going to be talking about a topic that a lot of people have been talking about kind of all week. Uh, Amazon released a preview of Chronicle Volume 3. Chronicle Volume 3 is due out on March 27th. Um, we don't have copies of it yet because it's not out yet. However, there was a massive preview available on Amazon. It was like 36 pages or something like that. And then Polygon had another preview with some extra pages there. Basically, there are so many pages from this preview that have been released over the past week or so that we've got pretty much like the first couple of chapters almost complete. Um, so we're going to be talking about that and we're going to be talking about what's in it. If you have not 
looked at any of these previews and you're avoiding spoilers, this is the point where you want to go ahead and just hit stop and come back and listen to this again after the 27th or after you've got the book in your hands and you've given it a read because we're talking spoilers. Now, this is all covering material that we already know pretty much because Chronicle just it goes over past lore but there are some new tidbits in there and there's some pretty fascinating new tidbits so if you'd like to wait and discover those yourself go ahead and leave we aren't going to hold it against you that's why we put a spoiler warning in here um, anybody who wants to hear our thoughts on what's going on with all of this uh, stick around that's your warning alright so uh there was an astonishing number of pages released. This uh, this book, Chronicle Volume 3, it's 139 pages, I want to say. No, 184. It's 184 pages. It comes out from Dark Horse Books on the 27th. And first up, let's just talk about this because I did not think that this was going to happen. The book covers everything from the Third War through Cataclysm. Yeah, which is... it. So here's the weird thing, and I and I had just talked about this particular type of thing with uh, f- several other folks yeah. on another podcast where it's – I did not expect them to to sort of jump that much time or, or cram that much time into one book, which is surprising to me because I figured they would have given us more meat and kind of expanded it out a little bit. And I you know we were talking about this a little bit before we recorded, but I, I'm with you guys like – I really thought they were going to stop at the Third War. The Third War had so much material in there between Warcraft 3 and uh, the expansion that came with Warcraft 3. So there was like everything that was going on in Lordaeron, everything that was going on with the Plague, everything that was going on with the Scourge. And then on top of that, we had all of the stuff that was going on on Kalimdor leading up to that battle on Hyjal and, and Medivh's involvement in all of this that... I honestly, I legit thought that there was enough material there to fill a volume in and of itself. I still maintain that there is. And I figured that we would have gotten that plus maybe that um, interim period between the end of the Third War and the beginning of World of Warcraft. I figured that would be a pretty sizable book in and of itself. Instead, what it looks like here is that we've got like a couple of chapters dedicated to it, maybe? And that's it? Um, well, I can tell, looking at it from when I looked at the preview, it looks to me like chapter one is basically the re- the lead up to the third war. It's like all the stuff that happened behind the scenes. Yeah, the first three chapters. First one is the rising darkness. Second one is the third war. Third one is the frozen throne. Yeah, so it feels to me like, honestly, I, I'm not disagreeing with you guys that they could have done it all just third war type stuff but the the chapter that is dedicated to the third war seems pretty comprehensive to me it is i mean i, I read through it and i'm sitting here going yeah that's i wrote like eight thousand words on the on the third war <laughs> and this feels like they've and i'm not exaggerating i'm thinking back to the actual length of the third war columns i wrote and i'm like this feels to me like maybe eighty thousand words and so that's that's pretty substantial i mean it's a big chapter and it's, i'm sure it's not part small. of it and I'm sure part of it, too, is like we're starting to get into the territory of things players, quote unquote, know already. Right. So and I'm sure that some of that is like, OK, this exists in our game world already or in comics or in books that have already come out. So maybe it's not necessary to dive deeper because they mm. can sort of let, See, I, I, I shouldn't say like I want, don't want to say summarize, 
but I mean, they don't have to describe every single rock. They don't have to pull a Stephen King, right? Well, I, I mean, I was actually really surprised at how much detail they went into the horde. Like, yeah. there's yeah. a lot of yeah. formation of the new horde detail. It's there's a lot there. There's a lot of thrall story. I mean, it's it is it, summer. We're gonna You're go in. Right. Yeah, we're gonna go into that a little bit more um, later on because there's some stuff, particularly with the formation of the horde as we know it today that I do want to talk, talk about and kind of um, yeah, discuss not, and address without actually talking about details. All I'm saying is they did get a lot in and yeah, they did. I really actually, we should probably just start talking about it. Cause that's, what's going to end up happening. We're yeah. Just <laughs> yeah. Um, I think the first thing that I want to mention, and the only reason I want to mention this first is because this was uh it was something that we had been talking about fairly recently. I don't know if it was on the last episode or the episode before. Um, we were going back to that whole little theory that we had about Nerzul being merged with some kind of necrotic entity. Um, yeah, no, that's not a thing. It was just Nerzul all along. See, I don't know that that necessarily contradicts anything we said. Because yeah. it says he yeah. pushed, it says he pushed Nerzul through the veil of death. It yeah, that's say exactly how what he did yep. it. Or, or, and, what, or how he got to that point, yeah. Yeah. It's, there's still plenty of room for for anything they want to do later. I don't think they're going to do anything later. I yeah. get the sense that whatever we get is going to be much more about Bolvar, and they're not going to look backwards. But they didn't really contradict anything we said. They just – because they didn't really say anything new. That's exactly what they've always said. Yeah, he tortured Nurzel, broke him, and then turned him into the Ledge Gang. And the interesting- that's just what they said here. Yeah, yeah and, it and- says – the, the paragraph in question – says Nerzul, his sanity cracking, finally agreed. Kiljaden passed the orc's spirit through death and revived him as a spectral entity. The orc's consciousness expanded a thousandfold, granting him extraordinary psychic powers. The dreadlords bound his disembodied spirit to a specially crafted set of armor and a mighty rune blade called Frostmourne. These items were locked in a diamond-hard block of ice to imprison Nerzul. So, there's no... Oh, hey, we contacted an entity from far away well, or anything like that. Yeah, there's nothing there. But, I mean, going with like what Rossi said, too, like they they could still focus completely on Bolivar going forward yeah. in the new content. But there's nothing that says we can't find out what that pass through death means. Because we're starting to see, even in Legion, like we have a whole bunch of new what does it mean to actually pass through death? What does it actually mean to to touch death? And we have more now than we ever have of what that actually means. I mean, and this is, we're talking about like Shadowlands, all the deals that have been been made possibly uh, with the entities through, you know, Odin and and, and Helia. Uh, So there's still room for that, which I appreciate. Uh, And I mean, I'm hopeful that we'll get a little bit more because it would seem, for me, it would be kind of cool to see if, it's not just purely a legion construct and also with the way that they talk about his consciousness later on in here there's nothing that says that he couldn't have made a contact or sought allies later as well like there, there's a whole bunch of wiggle room here which i, I appreciate yeah the one thing i actually thought was really interesting wasn't even so much the the nerzul revelation revelation although that is interesting but the fact that the valkyr that he made are effectively copies yeah he yeah he was basically get... copycatting he, yeah, he found he the blueprint. He didn't get well. He didn't find the blueprint. He just reverse engineered it. He just well, kept trying you know, to make them. Yeah. He kept trying to make them until he could. Like he and he couldn't at first. Like even with the full power of the Lich King, he couldn't figure out how to do Valkyr at first until he basically tortured and killed a whole bunch of of Rykul to get it done. Um, and that was really interesting too. Is that they mentioned the Rykul here 
which are obviously if you play Warcraft three, there are no Vrykel in it. I mean, that's just they were in, they were introduced in uh, Wrath. Well, so they, that's they sort of explain that though too. No, no, no. It's, cool. it's actually really nice. Um, they basically the Vrykel were were so easily victimized because they were sleeping, mm-hmm. because the aspects put them to sleep you know, eons ago. And that's all stuff we saw in the previous Chronicles. That's not new. Yep. Um, but it's very interesting that they were unconscious and so they couldn't defend themselves. So he sent his minions in, murdered a whole bunch of them, raised them as undead, and boom. Uh, they got himself a bunch of Rykel. That's how he got so many Rykel working for him. And it's interesting because it paints the Rykel in a new light. It wasn't necessarily... When we saw them in, in Northrend, they seemed pretty loyal. Like when you meet King Ymiron and all that, they seem pretty loyal. Of course, they would seem pretty loyal. They, the scourge are almost always converted to be loyal. It's it's a fascinating little bit of fill in that I, that this book does really well. Um, with a lot of subjects, not just this one. So, I just wanted to call that one out. I liked it. The other thing that I thought was interesting about that particular little section, and it was one of those footnotes, those little incursive footnote things that they had. Um, the last sentence of that section said that the Valkyr greatly enhanced his ability to control the dark powers of undeath. Like, yeah, they yeah. enhanced him which i thought was pretty interesting because i was under the impression he was sort of or all powerful what have you so there's, but... there's actually like one of the things that i've noticed in chronicle that they didn't really mention much in warcraft 3 or in wrath mm-hmm. was that the more intelligent undead he commanded the more powerful he got yeah like they're they're having he, him having a bunch of mindless undead is all finding good and they're a good brute force thing but they don't increase his strength but when he controls undead who have free will to a degree, like he, they still have to do what he says, but they can think that he gets more powerful. He adds their intelligence to his own. And that was fascinating to me because that's a problem coming forward. Because what did, what did Bolfar just do? He just got practically the entire Ebon Blade. Oh, yep, yep. He added the four horsemen. The four horsemen are all intelligent, including Darien. Mm-hmm. He's got those four. And they're All those free champions w- are also yeah. pretty smart. Yeah, they're thinking undead, and he now has them. And it's really fascinating to me how he's kind of like rebuilding. So th- that was a th- that. And he's was, doing it so sneakily too. It's like, is he rebuild? What is he rebuilding for? You know that kind yeah, of I thing. Yeah, I mean, the the Legion War was a perfect opportunity because nobody was going to question it. Like, of course, he needs more forces. We're fighting demon armies. Well, not only that, but you make it you make it their idea, right? Like, it's the perfect setup that way because you have these these thinking undead, these these massive generals, these you know, for lack of a better term, tactical geniuses with all this power that are out there that could say no in a situation where they can't. They they're they're backed against the wall. Right, it's the perfect opportunity to capitalize on it. I love it. It's optimistic. It's interesting you point that out because the book also does. The book goes over the pre, you know, the the build up to the third war, and one of the points it made was that the Lich King actually managed to do that with Dreadlord. He got the Dreadlords to think it was their idea to make Arthas. Nerzul was very clever. Yeah, way more clever than even more so. Well, yeah. and what I find really funny about that, too, though, is the way they talk about how he made that realization that he was going to have to, uh, for lack of a better term, seek allies among the races he wishes to enslave was the whole war against the bugs, the war of the spider, uh, when he basically took all of those lovely followers of Anubarak and waged war against them and then sort of enslaved Anubarak. And, and was like, he, yeah, that's when he, that's when he made out. that realization. Yeah. He's like, oh, wait, if I actually get intelligent people 
under my sway first, this would have been a whole lot easier. I'm just going to do that from now on. Now, how do Plus, I do that? That's not just that's also when he determined that adding intelligent undead to his army made him more powerful yeah. at the same time because he turned an Uberak into one of his followers, but left him his mind. And suddenly he was stronger. Yeah. And, and it was that's it, really interesting to me that, that, that it's I don't know. I don't know that there's maybe a, a more important reason why Anubarak keeps getting brought back. And it's not just that the Lich King has a soft spot for him. No, it's he's just super powerful. Yeah, but also every time you bring him back, he adds to you. Creating the Valkyr added to his strength. Having intelligent undead servants increases his power. And I find this like there's so much potential for what could happen in the upcoming expansion based on what we're reading here. And then the expansion after that, that's what's really, I, I honestly and feel none like none of it is good, straight. but it's all fascinating. Yeah, well, yeah absolutely. Not a good, good quote unquote, <laughs> but I, I love that. I love that too. And I love the idea because it makes sense logically too. And this is the old school D and D nerd in me being happy with this sort of setup because it's easier to keep somebody yoked than to spread your consciousness and actively control all of them like he was doing previously with the mindless hordes of the scourge. Right. Like, and that's the way they described it is that he was like essentially playing chess with them in real time or, you know, maybe a real time strategy game. Who knows? Um, he was playing Warcraft three. He's playing Warcraft three basically with them. Uh, so that, that makes sense because if you have, these thinking undead, these intelligent creatures under your power that can then take over sort of that section of the hive mind for you. And all you have to do is occasionally exert just a little bit of, of power to say, yeah, just remember, you're still mine. That makes it easier for you to do anything else that you're doing because you don't have to worry about that side of the board. It's sort and of it like he was sense. playing. It's sort of like he was playing Warcraft three. Yeah, because yeah. I like that analogy. But then he's he was like, wait a minute. How about I convert some people who can play Warcraft three for me, and I'll just oversee them. I mean, it's he's botting. He's basically botting. That's yeah. what he's doing. <laughs> well, another way to look at it would be that he finally realized I need to get hero units. Yeah. I can't do Which, this without hero units. What am I doing? This is makes, I need to get the Death Knight, man. Well, and you think about it, too, from the Azul's perspective as well. Every time that they've been defeated, it's been these champions, these heroes that do it. Yeah. Right? And so what's the best way to counteract heroes and champions? And that Find heroes leads, and champions of your own. Yeah, that kind of leads up to the entire reasoning behind the war against the Lich King and Wrath of the Lich King, too. Because what was he doing that whole time? He was kind of fueling our fire and making us want to get revenge even more and making us get even stronger so that when he actually killed us, he had the best of the best for his army. Um, oh, yeah, and even when we... Thankfully, that didn't actually pan out because if it had, that would have been really, really bad. But there's that whole there's that whole soliloquy when he, like, murders us in Ice Crown Citadel. That oh, he, yeah. He, he says all that, and it's one of my favorite moments mm -hmm. from any any sort of boss encounter because... Yeah, it's the stereotypical sort of, uh, you know, oh, I have you defeated. I'm going to now tell you my entire plan. But he didn't really tell us anything we didn't already expect, but it was just so eloquently put together. And it's like that perfectly frames the motivations. And yeah. now when you add this into it with a thought process of Nerzel behind it and how that whole train started, it just makes even more sense. And it makes me love it even harder. Yeah. Okay, so moving on, um, there was one thing in here that I thought was really great, kind of hysterical, and I appreciated it immensely. In the index section, 
it goes through everything that is mentioned in the book and there is an entry for Madan only his page is listed as 404 because he is not found (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so I guess he's just been redacted entirely in terms of chronicle and in terms of actual lore we'd gotten a hint of that already Um, and a lot of the events that were in the Warcraft comics, some of them have remained the same, like the whole origins with Varian and how he was split into twin personalities, that kind of thing. That's all still there. But the stuff with Madan is not. And I'm perfectly okay with that. I I think I've mentioned before that I thought Madan was great for a comic book, but not so much for, like, World of Warcraft universe. He he makes a good comic book hero. He doesn't necessarily make a good World of Warcraft... Medina as a character isn't the issue, and it never has been the issue. It's the issue is the story get... behind him. Yeah. How do we yeah. get to Madan? Yeah. If Madan had simply been Garona's son who had a lot of power, fine. Yeah. If you really no want to, if you want to introduce that he's Medivh and, and Garona's son, That's okay. A little, uh... Yeah, you can. Uh, I'm not. I'm not down with it, but I can see it working. I didn't okay, really kind for of. it at all because. But then you add in all the other stuff they did it's like okay i'm he's sorry a pal- this- paladin shaman druid he's goku he's go- like seriously he goes super I, I, saiyan yeah like seriously at the, the when people used to make the joke that he's flying through the cosmos weight training in space i i didn't think it was funny because it's too accurate it's, yeah. yeah he got he's, nuts he's out running I, laps around that little tiny planet yeah. so, <laughs> I'm, I'm not like weeping that he's gone but i'm just glad they're gonna codify what actually happened with him right. not being there. And that's you know? the thing, is that there were um, a bunch of other little changes mentioned uh, as far as that goes. Uh, Cho'Gall was still in Silithus with the Twilight Sammer. That was established. He was down there doing the deeds of Cthulhu or working on I don't know what he was doing. He was doing a bunch of stuff with the Twilight Sammer down there near Encourage because, of course, there's an old god there. You know, you want to try and do something with that when you're part of the Twilight's hand, ha- Hammer and want to see the world just end spectacularly. Except that he and his followers, not all of them, but most of them, were chased out of Silithus by Garona. She showed up and she started killing them systematically. Um, there was this wonderful uh, excerpt here that uh, let's see. It was like the Twilight's hammer bolstered their defenses and laid traps, but Garona had been studying the region for months. The cave complex was not their home. It was her hunting ground. I like that. <laughs> I like that a lot. Um, the other interesting thing about this, and I don't think we ever had any indication of this prior to Chronicle Volume 3. When they left, Cho'Gall went to Northrend, and he was the one that started working on weakening the chains that held Yogg-Saron prisoner. He was able to just walk right in because everybody else, all of the all of the guardians and everything, they were all kind of under Yogg-Saron's hold anyway, even if they weren't even if he couldn't order them to do things, they were too distracted by what was going on to pay attention to the fact that Cho'Gall was there. <laughs> and Cho'Gall just strolled right down, started working on the chains, cutting him free, whatever, and then he left after that. But um, that I found interesting, because I, I, I was kind of wondering about that, um, if he had had a hand in any of that, or if the Twilight's hammer had had it. Because we didn't really see them in Northern at all, did we? No. Just inside Olduar. Like when you yeah. get to a certain point in Olduar, they're suddenly there. Yeah. Once but you once that... you break the yeah, once you once you break the watcher's screen, you start heading down the final hallway. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's. I, I remember because, and you're going to laugh at me, but I remember this because when we were doing uh, that, I remember getting really upset that the weapon that the Twilight's Hammer Berserkers are using doesn't drop anywhere. It is not a weapon you can get. It is just a model they have. And when Transmog but came out, I got really, really mad. But it's a pretty model. Though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've wanted it for years. And that one of the weapons, one of the tra- one of the models that you can get for your uh, artifact, if you're an arms warrior, looks kind of like it, but is not as cool, unfortunately. So I'm still upset. But yeah, that's that's how I know the Twilight's Hammer were there. <laughs> that's the entire there's reason a, I remember. Yeah, but there's no evidence of actual like Chogal Chogal. No, anywhere. no, they never they never said you know for Chogal or nothing. The the only evidence that Chogal was involved was simply the fact that there are Twilight's Hammer guys there. Hammer guys there. That was it. Yeah. And now we find out, like, sort of why, I guess, would be the best best reason. I, I sort of appreciate that because I love Chogall in a weird sort of, like, he's a great crazy villain kind of way. Mm-hmm. And I like that they've given some more, well, here's what happened when everything else was going on. And, you know, here's what he was doing. And I, I, well, I appreciate that. It's interesting because between the last Chronicle and this one, one of the things they've done is really flesh out the origins of the Twilight's Hammer. Like, I think it's important. Yeah, like, and it links back to, uh, of all places, for all that we we give warlords some trouble from time to time, it links back to the Pale and Ashagun and warlords. Yeah, it does. Because that's the first time we saw those guys. And we find out that Cho'Gal, in our timeline, went to Ashagun and met the, the Pale there, too. Just like he did in, in Warlords. Mm-hmm. Except instead of going in and trying to corrupt the Naru, he joined the Horde and tried to corrupt the Horde. It's sort of, um, it's like Kairos said, where everything is very similar. It's just like individual blades of grass may be different when he brought yeah. Garrosh into that reality. So there, there's there's things that happened in Warlords of Draenor that absolutely happened on our timeline. We just didn't know about them because we didn't have that history. Like right. We, it wasn't written. Um, a lot of it is being kind of filled out here. The other thing that I appreciated, uh, you, the Twilight's Hammer in general were just kind of filled out and fleshed out a lot more in here. One of the things that they actually dedicated a section to, and I didn't expect them to do this, was um, the corruption of Archbishop Benedictus. There yeah, was, I was actually a section. <laughs> there was actually a section about it, um, about when they contacted him, how he fell to darkness. And, and it wasn't as out of left field as it seemed like it might have been at the time. Well, let's and be by honest. at the it, time, it, I mean in Cataclysm it, when we fought him, you know. Yeah, in, in Cataclysm, it straight up was out of left field because we yeah. didn't get any of this. There was no context, yeah. Yeah, now that they've got this stuff, this is a good backstory and it would have been nice had we seen any signs of it in Cata, but I'll take what I can get. Uh, it does make it make more sense. Like the idea that he, the idea that it was Arthas's fall that affected him. And that makes sense to a degree because Benedictus was Archbishop Fale's like successor. He yeah. was the guy who took over when Fale died. And he would have either been at Arthas's commencement ceremony when he became one of the Knights of the Silverhand, or he would have conducted it. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was, Fale was still alive at the time, right? Like he yeah, didn't he die was. after. So Fail would have been the one doing the ceremony, but Benedictus would have been there. He would have been one of the big people. I think of the church. he was. Oh, right. I'm pretty um, sure he was. I think it was Fail that was the one that actually did the inducting and all of that. But I, I, I have to go back to Arthas, like the novel Arthas, yeah. to double but check that. Either way, he would have. You know, that would have been one of the big moments of this guy's career. It's like seeing the Crown Prince of Lordaeron become a paladin. That's a huge deal. And then 
Lordaeron falls and turns into this undead like horror show and the light can't cure it and he sees this whole thing and he's like what why did this happen like that makes perfect sense you you expect people to be why didn't the light like why didn't the light step in when all of this stuff was going on you why know? didn't it save uther if you know if it wasn't going to save arthas okay maybe he was flawed but uther like what did uther ever do that that this was his fate all those people died and it just yeah, it it makes perfect sense. Demons walk the earth, this plague, you know. Of course he'd be shaken. You know, who wouldn't be? I'm Bro- sure everyone would actually... be even better, I think, as far as that. Like, I mean, his tenets of faith were being shattered. Yeah, but he held on. Like, it's really, I, I think, do you want to read it in? Because this is really amazing, I think. Um, Which bit? The one? The part about the cultists. Uh, the part about the cultists, yeah, I was actually just looking at that part. Uh, it says, The cultists learned of the archbishop's uncertainty, and they flocked to him like crows to carrion. They presented themselves as believers of the holy light in need of guidance. In truth, they came to whittle away at what was left of the archbishop's beliefs. Slowly but surely, they did. Some spoke of the void, a universal force of energy that would never abandon its, ser- its servants as the holy light did. Um like other priests, Archbishop Benedictus knew of shadow magic. He had not experimented with it himself, believing it was unholy and corruptive. Yet now he began to wonder if that was truly the case, or if it was merely what he had been led to believe. And it was this curiosity that opened the way to the old gods. They whispered in the Archbishop's dreams and showed him the light from their perspective. The holy energy was not as benevolent as it had once seemed. It tolerated only perfect order and obedience. It served its mortal adherence when it needed to not because of their faith and that i like that a lot um so it goes on it says these dreams continued for many nights culminating in a vision of the hour of twilight benedictus was moved by what he saw he considered the hour of twilight not as the apocalyptic end to all things but a chance to break free from the holy light's tyranny a chance to create a new world where he would be the master of his own destiny he came to believe that the old gods and the powers of the void were the natural state of the universe and that it was wrong to fight that reality as he had once tried to as a practitioner of the holy light the light had brought him and thousands of other people only disappointment and heartache the void was not the source of lies but of every possible truth it would not ignore or abandon its followers and benedictus pledged his life to serving it now here's the cool part right Benedictus joined the Twilight's Hammer cult, becoming one of its most influential members. Publicly, he remained head of the church, and through sheer willpower, he retained his ability to wield the holy light. This position afforded him great power and access to disillusioned priests and believers whom he could recruit into the cult. Benedictus was using the holy light because he was strong enough to still do it, even though he was like an acolyte of the shadow. That's Which, crazy. Which I mean, makes sense. That's crazy. And it's no wonder I wiped so many times on that stupid <laughs> boss. <laughs> yeah, he mean I mean we should have seen it coming since he was using the light during that fight. Yeah, he was. He was using yeah. both hand in hand, but um yeah. it didn't even occur to me at that point in time that, you know, why would he still be able to use light? Because he forced it. And it was a lot like the blood elves and how they kind of forced Maru. They like drained the light from Maru and just sort of wielded it like a weapon instead of letting it flow through them. Um, So yeah, Benedictus was really a powerhouse. And I liked this particular section a lot because I, I had questions about Benedictus, but I kind of figured, Oh, it was all, you know, it was in that one tiny part of cataclysm. It doesn't really 
matter in the long run or anything. But with this section, they managed to tie in all of this stuff about Cho'Gall and the Twilight's hammer, but they also kind of reinforce what we're hearing from Locust Walker and, and the things that Alaria saw. The, the whole bit about how the void isn't the source of lies, but it's the source of every possible truth. Like, that's from current, present lore. That's stuff that we're learning right now. And they back, you know, they tied it back into this other stuff that was going on. And it makes total sense. So I was, I was really happy to see that. Um, I don't, I still don't think that I quite get why they decided to go all the way through to Cataclysm with this. But at the same time, I... just the fact that they have these story threads about the Void and stuff, it kind of backs up what they're telling us with the Void Elves and with Locust Walker and all. Of, so, I mean, I can see it. And it does well, make only, sense. I think there's also some other important things, too, that lead to some of the things we were saying earlier uh, in earlier episodes where a lot of it seems like they're also setting up not just connections to the void, but like the old gods and their level of corruption. Because when I was reading through this, the a lot of the things that they pointed out were, you know, not just the void, not just the natural state of things, not just that corruption there. But here's what the old gods were doing during that time. Here's here's when they decided to work together it, to, to use what monochrome like monochrome of power that they had from their like weird shackled prisons that they could still infect and influence. And here's they're pointing that out. And I think that is very specific and very intentional because I have a feeling from what I'm seeing uh, now that I have alpha access, the stuff that I'm seeing it seems perfectly relevant. So the idea of going all the way up through Cataclysm, which, you know, arguably has one of the most important tools of the old gods dying in it, which, you know, here's Deathwing, understanding up through that point makes it makes a certain amount of sense because that's all going to come into play soon. So I kind of get it. There was also another little footnote in here that I want to mention because it does directly tie into the next expansion and where we're going to be. Um, y'all Is remember, it the Jaina one? Yeah, y'all remember when Jaina kind of like stood aside and said, okay, well, you go, you guys go do what you have to do to the Horde. And then they stormed in and they killed her dad, Grand Admiral Dalen Proudmore. Uh, there is a footnote here that says not only was Grand Admiral Dalen Proudmore a military commander, but he was also ruler of the human nation of Kul Tiras. His people cried out for vengeance for his death, but the rest of the Alliance did not seek it. The plague of undeath in Lordaeron had already left the Alliance reeling, and its other leaders had little pity for Dalen Proudmore, who had launched a war of aggression on his own authority. In fury, the people of Kul Tiras isolated themselves from the rest of the Alliance, but their anger was not focused on King Varian Wren or any of the other Alliance leaders. Instead, they grew to hate Jaina Proudmore, the daughter who had betrayed her family. Yeah, so that happened. Yeah, <laughs> and, and that makes perfect sense yeah. because it does. I, it absolutely I, does. I, I don't want to talk about the alpha, but that definitely goes oh, along yeah. with stuff we've seen on the alpha. Yeah, yeah, and I have a feeling it's going to play pretty hard into what's going on there. And I have a feeling that Jaina, given who she is right now, after everything that she's experienced with Theramore and beyond is going to be eating a lot of crow on her way back to Kul Tiras. Um I haven't played through enough of the Alpha to actually like see her or her mother anywhere. Um, I don't know if that's just in a section I haven't opened yet or it's in a section that I haven't played through yet. All I've played through on the Alliance side has been Drustwar, and she's not there. So <laughs> Yeah, it's mostly yeah. in the other... The other starting zone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and I'm going to have to... I can't remember the name. Bor Boralis? Um, Boralis, Boralis is, the, is the big city. Is the big yeah. city. 
Uh, and I've got Terrace Guard Falls or Terrace Guard Bay. I don't know. Terrace yeah, something. It's the Terrace Guard Coast, but yeah, yeah. I, I have to um, actually play through that section. My problem with Alpha is that they open a section and then I go through and I screenshot the heck out of everything so that I have this beautiful gallery cultivated with everything. And mm-hmm. then and then I have to find the time to go back and actually do all the quests for the area. Yep. I may end up doing that later today <laughs> and playing through that side because uh, the troll side of things is certainly interesting too. But um, it's kind of interesting to note that, you know, Colturus wasn't just lost. It wasn't that we didn't know where it was. It was that they deliberately withdrew. They said, yeah, no, our leader is dead, and we don't like any of you guys. <laughs> and they pulled away. Um, another thing that I want to talk about, because this was honestly pretty fascinating, and probably one of the more interesting things to come out of this, uh, and this was a bit of information that we didn't actually have. So the Forsaken, when the Forsaken join the horde all we had were like hints that the Torin, like hamel rune totem fought to bring the forsaken in because he thought that they could be like redeemed not just you know physically but or, or spiritually anyway he thought that they the, there was a chance for redemption with these people um and that's why they came to the horde that's all we really knew about that we hadn't we weren't I mean this was all after Warcraft 3 yeah, like before I think it, World of Warcraft it was the in between period didn't it all come from like you know basically dialogue in the old uh, caves yeah. underneath Tor- yeah. Tor- Tor- Thunder yeah. Bluff and that was it that was that was like the only bit that was there really uh, there is a section here and I'm going to go ahead and read this because it's pretty short but um, it talks about the Forsaken and the Horde and how the Forsaken came to the Horde uh, it says, Across the sea from Kalimdor, Queen Sylvanas Windrunner and her Forsaken were beset by enemies on all sides. The Scarlet Crusade did not care these undead bodies had reclaimed their wills from the Lich King. The fanatical sect had vowed to eradicate them no matter what. Sylvanas reached out to her former people in Kelphalas, asking them for sanctuary. She had given her life to protect them, and she expected something in return for her sacrifice. Yet her request was refused. The Blood Elves feared the undead and treated them as monsters. Growing more and more desperate, she sent ambassadors to both the Alliance and the Horde. Her emissaries to the Alliance never returned. Sylvana suspected they hadn't survived long enough to even make it past the gates of Stormwind City. The first sign of hope came from an unexpected place, the Torin. An archdruid named Hamel Runetotem looked past the undead's monstrous exterior and believed that they could be redeemed and revived, perhaps not physically, but spiritually. He brought the Forsaken ambassadors to meet with Cairn Bloodhoof, High Chieftain of the Torin tribes, and Cairn agreed that the undead should be given a chance to thrive. Thrall invited Sylvanas Windrunner to Orgrimmar. He had sympathy for her followers, though orcs had once been corrupted as well, and that had been a hard legacy to overcome. But he also recognized the strategic value of the Forsaken. They lived in the ruins of Lordaeron. The city would be a valuable foothold in the Eastern Kingdoms, should the Alliance ever provoke war again. More importantly, the Scourge had not been eradicated. It had only been temporarily defeated. The Horde needed every ally it could find to protect its lands from the Lich King's undead army. After much consideration, Thrall made its decision. The Forsaken were allowed into the Horde. She went to Lorthamar. Let's let's set this up here, because timeline-wise, all of this went down after Warcraft 3 and mm-hmm. before World of Warcraft. So this would have been after the Third War, when the Scarlet Crusade was definitely on the rise and still wreaking havoc all over Lordaeron. Lordaeron is in ru- ruins. Where are the Blood Elves at at this point in time? Well... 
let's see. Kael'thas is an outland somewhere. We don't know where. Uh, what was it? 90% of their population had been decimated in the Third War? Yeah, pretty much. It was like 80 or 90% of their population was just flat out gone. Lorthamar was made Regent Lord. Didn't necessarily want the position, but he took it. And nobody really had... They were struggling to figure out day-to-day survival at that point, I think. I don't think Maru had been sent back. No, no. They uh, hadn't heard anything from Kael'thas. As far as I know, the Ghostlands uh, graphic novel is still... Yeah. Uh, canon. Yeah. And in that, they basically, the, the manga, they basically make the point that they pulled people out of the Ghostlands. Yeah. Like, like, if you were alive and you were a blood elf at that point, they pulled as many people out. Like, the Ghostlands was basically abandoned. Like, straight up, get out of there, come here. And they brought, like, as many people as they could to the city. Given. And so, yeah, there, there was, like, a huge retrenching. Like, they given... pulled back. Given, though, given everything that they had just gotten through experiencing, given the sheer amount of people that they had lost, given the fact that the Sunwell was gone, that their leader, Kael'thas Sunstrider, had traveled to parts unknown to search for a cure for something that was only just starting to, you know, inflict everybody, that withdrawal of magic. Is it any wonder that if their dead former ranger general showed up at their doorstep, went knock, 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 and said, hi, I'm here, they would run screaming? <laughs> yeah, I do, I'm interested in exactly what happened. Like, who did, who did she send? Did she see, go herself or did yeah, she send someone? I want and, to see a short story of that exchange. I want to see that this is a period in history that I think deserves a short story. Well, not only it, it completely changes the context if you if you roll the blood elf, yeah, and do the blood elf starting zone, which I think everybody here has done, right? Oh yeah, it changes the context a great deal because her aloofness and sinister aspect makes a lot more sense when you realize that this is her doing for Lorthamar what he did not do for her. She reached out, to, and Lorthamar's her former second in command. Yeah, like the, the, he was. They would have been close. Like the, he, now, she wasn't as close with Lorthamar as she was with somebody else, and we all know that. But they would have been close. He would have worked at her side. And she reached out to him for help, and he didn't – at best, he didn't respond. At worst, he was like, <laughs> no. And then when they reach out to her, she's like, all right, I will send some of my people to assist you, and we'll talk about getting you into the Horde. Every ounce of that – like there's there's a lot going on there between the the relationship between those two people and between those two peoples that here's changes. What I, here's what I find kind of interesting though is that I mean, like I said, is there any doubt why these guys were terrified of the undead? I mean, they had just gone through all of this stuff. Oh, like they when they still had reached yeah. out to them. There's still scourge things wandering around the ghostlands at that very moment. They were like, pulling they, they... people out of there because it was. It, naturally some undead comes up and says hi no i'm a good undead yeah no they're not gonna buy that they're not gonna believe that are you kidding 90 percent of their population was just wiped out the sunwell is gone so i'm not surprised that they had that kind of reaction where they were like no 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 <laughs> just like backed up walled themselves in the city and said no you you could go elsewhere okay you could just go elsewhere I would have also... been surprised, honestly, if she could have gotten anyone to stand still long enough to even hear. No, yeah. they just ran screaming, probably. But here's the fun part, Or though. attacked. 
one or the other. Here's the fun part. When they came to her later and said, hi, we would like to be part of the Horde, she didn't turn them away. She didn't show any kind of plausible empathy because I don't think that she has any (laughs) as an undead. I I think empathy is kind of out the window. There was no, oh yeah, that was all just a misunderstanding. See, we thought you were this horrifying undead monster, and you are still, kind of. But it's okay, because we need you now. Like, there was no, she had no sympathy for, oh yeah, that must have been shocking for you to see me as, like, dead-ish. That that was probably a bit. No, she approaches it very logically and very analytically and very coldly. She's like, yes, I will go ahead and get you entry into the horde. We will come help you out. You're going to do some things for me. And it was just this very diplomatic, you know, if you go back to In the Shadow of the Sun, when she's basically holding it over Lorthamar and says, you need to give me troops to take to Northrend. And if you don't, I'm pulling all of my support. And so will the rest of the horde. And there's that situation where Lorthamar is stuck in this kind of almost like blackmail kind of scenario but it's not but it is and she's still just as cold as ever and doesn't seem to like get the fact that all these people died well of course you know she's not going to sit there and and, like pat him on the shoulder and say oh they're there it's okay she died She died and she came back as a banshee and then she found her body and reclaimed it, but she's never going to be one of them again. Did they show her any sympathy? No. Why is she going to show them any sympathy? It's just there's this interesting dynamic here and I feel like it would make for a great short story. You know what I mean? It also produces a wonderful what if. Yeah. Because then you wonder, had had sympathy been shown, had help been given earlier, would Sylvanas still be in that same same? Would we have three factions? Position? Yeah, and and that's and that's kind of like what I've always wondered too. Because I gotta be honest with you though, there's the meat there for that. There really yeah. is. I just, honestly, I don't. Here's a problem with that: going to Quelitha Loss for help at that moment was like going to the house of somebody who just had their front door kicked in, every member of their family but the two youngest killed, and going, "Oh, hey kids, I know you're having trouble, but it's me, your dead uncle." Uh, I've come back from the grave as a rotting zombie, and I have like thirty rotten zombie friends with me. Can we come live with you? You got any like, band aids? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm not, not, in, I'm not, not saying in a that position is... to help her. No, but not... the problem with it is like, had had they even wanted to, they still couldn't have. And they didn't they want didn't... to because no, why they would they? But, but I think I think that's I think more it any, though. Yeah, but I think any what if scenario has to take into account the real what if is. What if the Alliance hadn't just killed her envoys on sight? That, yeah. That's the fascinating part to and me, was that she went question. to Stormwind at all. Like, she went yeah. to the Alliance at all. But then, again, logic. Her logic was sound, because these are former citizens of Lordaeron that have regained well, their sanity. Why not the send it, them to the Alliance that they used to serve? It takes a lot of stones, though, to go to the Alliance after you've just killed a guy who said he was a member of the Alliance. True. She just killed Garethos. Okay, now, but Garethos was a jerk. Jack, oh yeah, totally. <laughs> I'm not defending the guy. But I'm saying, it shows you exactly how Sylvanas thinks that she just murdered this dude who was calling himself, you know, the, you know, Alliance Marshal. She just killed him. And then her next thing is, but well, I'll try the other one. And I find myself wondering, what if, you know, we don't, we don't have all the book. So we don't know exactly everything that might've happened. It would be hilarious to me if Cho'Gall had them killed, because one of the things it says is that he wanted to keep the Alliance and the Horde divided. And imagine if 
So they Sylvanas. never got there because yeah. he took. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, interesting. Imagine if Sylvanas is, is envoys had gotten to the alliance, and the alliance had been like, "Okay, we don't like this at all, but we can talk." I suppose. I mean, do you have any guarantee you can give us that you're not going to all just eat us? Like, because we'd like we'd like a little guarantee on the whole not eating. Because you see, a lot of my people here right now ran from Lordaeron, and they saw you eating them um so so yeah a little help here would be great but i don't know i i i find myself thinking if if like some skulking undead showed up in stormwind and was like i'm here to see i don't think the words passed i'm here to see would have gotten out i honestly feel like arrows just would have feathered them which makes it kind of a wonder and a marvel that the death knights even became a thing in the alliance honestly yeah it really is um i think the fact that they sent relatively well but then again death knights don't necessarily look dead immediately no i don't know when you do the death knight starting zone the people are throwing rotten fruit at you immediately like they they recognize there's something wrong with you so i don't know uh, it's just this is a is a mess you don't up have moment. bits falling off and bones showing so i guess you're kind of okay like there's a level of zombie that that the majority of azeroth is just not willing to i accept. just want to understand what it is about being a member of the forsaken that just ruins my knees every time on every outfit i have <laughs> why are my knees going through this this is a magical suit of elementium armor why are my knees coming through it i have sharp knees fellas super and shoulders sharp knees. shoulders oh my gosh it goes right through the shoulders too it's pretty crazy all right. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention here, and this was actually part, it wasn't part of the preview on Amazon. This was part of the preview on Polygon, polygon.com. They had um, a few pages av- made available to them from Dark Horse. Uh, and it was separate pages from what you saw on Amazon. It was actually from later in the book. Uh, this particular particular section, or rather, it's it's one of those little footnote tidbitty things that's in italics, right? Um, it also directly addresses something that we talked about I don't know if it was a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, something like that. We were talking about Algalon and we were talking about how, or we were talking about the question of whether or not that failsafe would have actually done anything because there was nobody there to receive the signal. Obviously the Titans were dead. So it was like, huh, I wonder what would have happened there. Fortunately, apparently Chronicle just sort of like predicted this question before it ever <laughs> before we ever thought about asking it and answered it. Uh, it says, The reorigination of Azeroth. As part of the failsafe protocol, Algalon sent a signal to the Titans that would notify them of his analysis, allowing them to approve the Forge of Origination's activation. Neither the Constellar nor Azeroth's heroes knew that the Titans had fallen to Sargeras in the Burning Legion long ago. Though the Titans would never receive Algalon's signal, that would not have stopped the failsafe. Ultimately, the Forge of Origination would have destroyed all life on Azeroth. Okay, so there's our answer. It would have destroyed. <laughs> it would have destroyed the world either way, regardless of whether or not anybody had actually gotten the signal. Um, yeah, I, I, that made sense to me because if it did, if it wouldn't have, then the whole thing Deathwing was trying to do in Cataclysm wouldn't have made any sense. Yeah, because he he was trying really hard to get in there, uh, uh, and that's interesting to me because that's the old gods seem really keen on reoriginating this planet. Yeah, because that's the whole Algalon thing. That was that was Yog Saron. Oh, straight yeah. up trying to get that to happen. And then in Cataclysm, Deathwing, who is a servant of the old gods, tries to go in and turn it on himself. It's kind of like finding out, okay, well, we can't, you know, the remote control's lost, guys. We straight up don't have it. I'm going to have to go push a button on the TV myself. Unfortunately, the TV is completely guarded by maniacs, so I'm going to have to corrupt them first. 
Yeah, I, I feel like this is many, too many steps on the TV. But, you know, the, the reorigination thing, that's how it works. Doesn't someone I, just I, have a universal remote? They, they make nice. apps for this now. <laughs> but, yeah, there is, like, there's, what's really fascinating to me about that, though, is it, it really kind of ties into, like, what's going to be happening, like, in the future. Like, what what happens with the old gods now? What are they going to... They can't reoriginate the planet. They've tried multiple times. What What is the new endgame? Like, the Hour of Twilight supposedly happened, and we stopped it. So are they just going to try that again? Like, do they just have another... We're we just going to keep having Hours of Twilight until one sticks? I think they're just going to try and work their way to Azeroth now. I mean, Sargeras kind of opened a fairly straightforward path, didn't he? With that sword, the big honking sword. That well, I mean, could just like it's hmm, let's it's just sneak down those, there that way. But I think that what it boils down to is even with like, if you want to talk about reorigination, is it's all about opening, like you said, that path to the center, right? And that's what the old gods have been trying to do since they they hit the planet, right? Since since the Black Empire, they've been trying to burrow to the center of Azeroth to get to the the nugget center of the the candy bar here. Uh, that's why when one of them gets ripped out of the surface of Azeroth. The Titans freak out because they're like, oh, God, look how deep this is. We can't do this. You know, this this is this is super deep. This is going to murder, murder this, this planet. It's going to murder this Titan if we do this. That's what makes them afraid to do that in the first place is how deep they are. So they're trying to get to that nebula center where that soul is to corrupt it. And I think that was part of why origination was such a thing, too, because and I've said this before in the past, reorigination you, you burn everything to dust. You're basically breaking it apart back into its base components and making it one with the sort of the material of the planet again. That's a pretty darn good way of spreading your infection or influence, especially if you're trapped. Because if everything gets wiped away, that prison's not there anymore. And if you're already buried so deep into the crust of the planet, so deep towards that world soul getting wiped from the surface doesn't really matter to you anymore because now there's just nothing to oppose you. And same thing with like the whole Deathwing gambit, same principle, same thing. Here's, all those, all those old gods work together to corrupt him for that same purpose. Did you guys, have you guys done the rod end fight ever? Yes. Oh yeah. Multiple times. Yeah. I, I was just there this week um, because I was trying to finally complete one of my sets and I did. Yay. I actually had a, a thing where I was completing various transmog sets, finally getting the stupid bracers and so forth. Uh, and one of the things I noticed when I was doing Rodan was that he has that, you know, r- you know, wipe that, you know, mocking pity from your faces and save it, turn it inward because you will be needing it thing. And it's kind of funny because Rodan has basically the same ultimate conclusion as Algalon where bo- they both are like, all right, you're stronger than I thought. You're still going to die. And you know, Rodan says that Algon doesn't, but like you're, you're still going to die, but you ha- you've deserved the chance to fight. If you're this powerful, you get, you should at least get to fight. And so he like leaves, he just takes off. And that's one of the things that stuck with me from that fight. And it, I don't, I don't know that reorigination is actually going to, to, to serve the old gods so much as it's just going to kill off all the distractions. Like, I don't think it actually will fold them any deeper into the planet or anything, but I do find myself thinking about why they'd want it, why it's always like an, a complete annihilation, why they want to kill off everything. Because, because it gets we, rid of us. Yeah, exactly. We're not, we're not what they expected when they came up with the Curse of Flesh. No. They, they came up with that because it may, would make the Titan Forged easier to 
you know, consume essentially. It would make it easier to assimilate them. And that works sometimes. We can see them corrupting people like Benedictus. Like we can go back to the Benedictus thing. You can corrupt them. But then Benedictus is terrifying because you think about it. He can do something old god followers can't. Like the old gods native, the Naraki and so forth. You never hear about them using the light. You yeah, and that's about, super, super frightening. Yeah, they, they can be corrupted and embrace the void and still use the light. You can have somebody like, oh, bloody heck, I can't remember his name from Nexramus, the paladin one the, of, the, of the four horsemen. Oh. Zeliac. Zeliac. You can have someone Thank like Zeliac you. who's dead. He's dead. He's undead. And he's completely under the thrall of the Lich King. And he can still use the holy light. Mm-hmm. Because that's his like, will is that strong. Yeah, and that's the thing. We keep coming back to that. And we have Illyria, whose will is strong enough that she can control the void and not immediately go cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. She can you control know? it without succumbing to it. Yeah, and that, I think at some point the old gods have realized this plan is not working as well as we'd hoped. Like, it, I think we may have messed up, guys. We need to kill everything. We just kill it all off. Then we can just, you know, corrupting it's great, but I'm honestly not feeling like, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Like, there's a, a certain sense the old guys are starting to realize these guys are more trouble than they're worth. I mean, Al yeah. even says it after his fight. Like, one of my favorite quotes from World of Warcraft period is the one where he says, perhaps it is your imperfections, that which grants you free will that allows you to persevere against all cosmically calculated odds. You prevail where the Titan's own perfect creations have failed. And Sargras is like the perfect example of this. And we prevail against the Void's creations, too, because we have fought back against the old gods and defeated them. Like, we we don't compute as far as Algalon is concerned and as far as all of these. I mean, we go into this whole, oh, there's this grand cosmic battle between the Void and the Light and the Titans and the old gods and all this other stuff. We're kind of, we're, we're not a cog in the machine, or if we are, we're a cog that, that's conscious of the fact that it's a cog and is willing to step out and stop being a cog if it doesn't like where that machine is going. We're kind of like this rogue element. Yeah, there's a certain so of amount of like... of course the old gods yeah. want to get rid of us because we're, we, we seem to be bound and determined to wreck everything that they have. Reorigination, it doesn't just like get rid of the planet. It's, it's like reorigination to the old gods is what... Cleaving a planet in two is to Sargeras. It's that moment of, well, we're just not going to let anybody have it. Let's get rid of it. And for the void, that kind of, and for the void, that almost kind of checks off the box in their favor because, no, do they get a void titan? No, they do not. But is existence present on that planet? Is the light present on that planet? Is there a planet to be present? No. And that's okay as far as they're concerned because the void is a vast expanse of what? Nothing. Well, plus if they kill off, if they kill the entire planet, if they if they just kill the uh, the world soul instead of corrupting it, mm-hmm. they can still try again somewhere else. Yeah, they can. But that's like what you just said about the whole we don't compute thing. If you think about it, there's that whole idea that the light it presents one option, yeah. one view of the future, and the void presents all possibles. We contradict both of these things. Because we say no, we say the light, no, there's not just one option. You're going to do what I say. And some heroes are that strong. They can actually force the light to do what they say. They can ignore what it wants in favor of what they want. But we, they, then they can turn to the void and say, no, not everything is true. Not everything is possible. I will never hurt my son. 
and there's nothing you can do to make that true. We're it outside will never of happen. that. They keep talking about yeah. the circle and the cycle and blah blah blah. We're outside of all of that, and they don't quite know what to do with us. Um, I think we impressed the Titans a lot in Legion because we were this unexpected element, you know. Well, they talk directly to us, which is more than they've ever done. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we're running out of time here, but there's one more thing that I want to mention because it's kind of horrifying to think about, and I I feel like we need to bring it up. One of the last things on Wowhead compiled all of these previews together and put them up on its site, and there's I, there's an umpteen, there's a ton of pages available for reading. It's it's like I said, it's like the first two chapters, but then there's also some excerpts from later chapters. And one of them involves Arthas, a.k.a. the Lich King. Um, we know that prior to Wrath of the Lich King, he kind of had that internal struggle battle between the Arthas side of the Lich King and the Ner'zhul side of the Lich King. And in the novel Arthas, in the novel Arthas, it mentions that Arthas won, essentially. Only it wasn't Arthas, it was just the Lich King. Um, So this excerpt kind of follows that, and it says, When the final battle was through, nothing remained of Ner'zhul but a wail of sorrow in the back of the Lich King's consciousness. Arthas found it easy to ignore. He spent the he spent a few years recovering his strength and planning his next move. As a paladin, Arthas had always sought to bring order and justice to Azeroth. That desire remained, but it was now far more twisted than ever before. A world ruled by un- by the undead would have no more injustice, no more wars, no more mortal flaws. Perhaps most importantly to the Lich King, he believed his scourge would be far more capable of defending Azeroth against the threats that would try to conquer it. He had observed the awakening of Cthune and the Burning Legion's attempts to launch other attacks on Azeroth. Neither the demons nor the powers of the Void would rest until they controlled the world. A fractured world, constantly beset by skirmishes between the Alliance and the Horde, simply would not be prepared for another incursion. There is a logic to this, and that logic echoes the logic that the Kirin Tor had. It, lo- it, it echoes the logic that Rathian had. It, it, it's scary. He's like, well, the Alliance of the Horde are too busy fighting to e- each other to defend the world. My Scourge can go ahead and defend the world just fine as an undead army without any of this nonsense, this factional nonsense. It'd all be gone. And Azeroth would be fine. Like, I did not expect to hear that come from the Lich King, of all people. When the Lich King is actually concerned with the preservation of the world, what does that mean? What does that mean for the future? Because Bolvar isn't just the Lich King now. Bolvar, Bolvar put on that helm and assumed that consciousness, that entity, but we don't know if it's just Bolvar rattling around in there, or if that, you know, that wail of sorrow from Ner'zhul, if there's still, like, maybe some of Arthas's line of thinking still in there somewhere, like, what's in that helm? We don't know. But well, it's... You know what's really frightening? What? You don't need it to be Arthas at all. No. Nope. You don't need to preserve any of that no. because Bolvar is a paladin, too. He's a protector, yep. Yep. In, in fact... Uh, Go ahead. I was just going to say, and that that right there is like sort of the perfect uh, encapsulation of to me what the Lich King is. It's the uh, willing—I don't want to say the the willing acceptance of 
uh, fate due to just preying on the core of who's wearing that crown, right? Because Arthas, yeah, he wants to wanted to preserve Azeroth. He wanted to preserve Azeroth, and that's why he, you know, th- this was the best course of action to him. So this is what he went with. And now, who's to say Bolvar isn't going to fall under that same thing? It's real easy to to get somebody to do something that they necessarily wouldn't do when they're already vulnerable and looking for a way to sort of complete a goal that they maybe feel, I don't know, unfinished business maybe. Which... Well, here's the thing too. Like I was talking about this yesterday on Twitter. To this day, when you look at what happened with Arthas, you look at the calling of Stratholme, you look at everything that happened. When you get up to the calling of Stratholme, you, you, it's easy to say what Arthas wanted to do was monstrous. But no one who opposed him offered him any other alternative. When he said, we're going to purge the city... It's, Uther was like, that's monstrous. I won't do that. But he didn't say, we'll do this instead. He gave him nothing. Jaina, when he turned to Jaina, he's like, Jaina? She's just like, I can't watch you do this. She didn't offer an alternative. Jaina no wanted to search for another solution, yeah. but she didn't have one on yeah. hand to give him. She yeah, just and, wanted to take the time to find one. And he was like, yeah. no, there is no time. Yeah, and it's kind of hard to argue because we know Malganus was in the city raiding to just turn them. Like, he was going to just trigger it. He wasn't going to wait for them to die. He was going to turn it on. Now, Arthas, from every point, like, I've, I've argued this since the days of when we were in Wrath was, like, a current expansion. Arthas, every step along the way, he did what seemed to him the best and most logical and also, at the same time, most caring thing he could do. He didn't want to kill the people of Stratholme because he hated them. He wanted to kill them to spare them because he'd seen, like, it was, I really to think it's that it army was a of mercy. Undead. Yeah, I remember that, like, when you play Warcraft 3, there's that part, I think it's at Anderhal, but it might not be, it might actually be up at uh, Hearthglen. It's Hearthglen, where you, you get overwhelmed, like, you go into the town, and everybody's fine, and suddenly, they start turning, and you get overwhelmed by undead, and it, like, the whole mission is just a nightmare. Yeah. It's just, and you, you barely get out alive. And Arthas, I really feel like from that moment, that's the moment where Arthas, like, lost any ability to, to get through this, because he, he'd seen it. And he didn't have anybody else who'd seen it. Uther yeah. hadn't seen it. Jaina hadn't seen it. They weren't there when that happened. But he was. So he couldn't convey to them exactly what was going to happen because they hadn't seen it. And Bolvar now has been sitting up there with that hat on his head in control of those Scourge for how many years has it been? Like, I think we're looking at like the, 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 the eighth year. Um, I'm not sure. I have to look it up. Let me look it up real quick. Yeah. And so he's been up there for like years. And if, even if he doesn't convey their actual spirits, he, it might convey their memories. He may be able to look through what they were thinking. And he's had all this time to think about it. Like, you know, would the score, would the scourge be better at defending Azeroth? If everybody was it's intelligent about, and dead. It's been about five years ish. Yeah. He's been up there for like five, six years. We'll say. And all that time, you know, he doesn't – you can make undead without making them all mindless. Like, the Forsaken exist, and they can all think. Is it necessary? They don't have to all be mindless, shambling undead that just do his will. I could honestly see Bolvar thinking it's a better state of existence. Because you never have to worry about dying. Fun bit of trivia. Um, Arthas put on the hat and assumed his place on the Frozen Throne in year 22. In year 27, we got Wrath of the Lich King, and that was five years. Um, we, let's see, Warlords was year 31, so 27 to 31, 
Okay, so that's Legion five is... years, and that's that's two warlords. So we're looking at like about six years or so. Because if Legion, if they follow the same policy of each expansion taking a year, we're looking at Bolvar's been sitting on that throne longer than Arthas was at this point. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, and you think about it too, if that would mean Legion is exactly five years after. Mm-hmm. So it means that Legion lines up for when Wrath of the Lich King started, mm-hmm. and Bolvar might just be playing it slower. It's just, okay, it's time to act, but I've got this demon invasion. Well, of course he'd be taking it slower, because um, if he goes on the same timeline as Arthas did, look at how that ended for Arthas. So, of course, you want to take a little extra time. Look at things. See where he went wrong. (laughs) I don't think Bolvar's up to anything good up there. (laughs) I think putting that hat on Bolvar was a tremendously bad idea. (laughs) I think calling it Bolvar at this point is, is disingenuous. I think leaving the Lich King unbothered. For that long is just bad in general, no matter who wears that crown. Yeah. Well, and... I, I think yeah, everybody who who did that fight knew we were making a mistake. <laughs> like anybody it was just was a like, big. Do we are we idea. sure we want to do that? Are we sure? I mean, I don't even feel comfy with Tyrion putting that thing on his head. But I mean, if somebody has to wear the hat, okay. <laughs> if, if Tyrion had put that hat on right now, the entire world would be would be full of undead trying to find him giant bugs to eat. Yeah. Maggot farming, something like that. Right. Well, that wraps us up on time here. Um, We could keep going on and on and on, but we don't have time to do that, unfortunately. World of Warcraft Chronicle Volume 3, that comes out on March 27th. So just in a few weeks here, it will be out and available for everybody to see. You can pre-order that on Amazon. Um, As far as Blizzard Watch goes, that's made possible due to the generous contributions at patreon.com slash blizzardwatch. And your continued support means that this podcast site and community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast, a better chance at having your question answered on our podcast or the queue, and an ads-free site experience. And for you guys listening to Lore Watch, uh, we've obviously, we've mentioned several Blizzard books, including, I think most prominently, the Arthas novel. Uh... If you guys want to help support the show and everything, uh, for the listeners of Blizzard Watch, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. They have a lot of Blizzard's books, including, I believe, Arthas is on that list. So if you haven't checked out the Arthas novel, um, totally recommend it, by the way. It's by Chrissy Golden. It's really, 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 really good. The audiobook version is excellent as well. You can check out that, or you can check out any of Blizzard's other titles or you could check out oh I don't know however many thousands they have available on Audible by going to blizzardwatch.com slash Audible and signing up for that free 30 day trial. Final thoughts you guys. Do you think that we're going to get another volume of Chronicle? Do you think that we're another volume of Chronicle is warranted to cover Mists of Pandaria Warlords of Draenor and Legion? I'm going to say... It's recent enough. I'm just wondering, it's recent enough. Do you think that we need another Chronicle to explain all of this stuff? Or I think so, too, because the Mogu are still in play. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot going on there that maybe we didn't quite get to see all of while we were in the expansion. And not necessarily 100% covered in the books. And I'd like to see more of that. I'd like to see what the Mogu are doing now. I'd like to see what what happened in the wake of everything that we did. Because they're still there. They still have plans. What do you think, Rossi? I think it may not be any. It may not be really soon, but keep in mind it takes like a like about two years to get through an expansion. Um, so it feels like we're going to have Battle for Azeroth. It's going to be out 
relatively shortly after this book comes out, after we get Chronicle Volume 3. Uh, I think by the time that expansion has worked its course, we're probably going to be in a good place for Volume 4 covering everything that led up to it. Because, all that, you know, you can't look at the Alliance and Horde dynamic without looking at Mists and Warlords because they they set the stage. Here's the reason I want to chronicle Volume 4. I want a section on Kairos, what he was thinking, what he was doing. I also want a section on Rathion, what he was thinking, what he was doing, and what he was up to while Warlords was going on and Legion was... Go- where is he? Just where is he? <laughs> Let's get a chronicle Volume 4 and explain all of that. All of those questions that we had after Miss was over and especially all those questions that we had once Warlords started because we just got that bare glimpse of Garrosh going and meeting his dad and everything and then we were getting rid of him in Nagrand, it seems like. So some more explanation on that part and some more filling out. I feel like a Chronicle Volume 4 could possibly potentially kind of fill in all of that lore that we didn't necessarily get while we were playing through Warlords of Draenor. I don't know. I'm interested in seeing it. I'm hoping that we'll get another volume. Regardless, if you're looking for Chronicle Volume 3, again, March 27th, we will see that. If you have an email for the show, you can send that to podcast at blizzardwatch.com. Be sure to put Lorewatch in the subject line so that we know that it's intended for the show. We should be getting to some emails next week, I hope. Thanks again very much for listening, and we will see you guys in two weeks. 